The thing I love about cardiology is one, it's the type of discipline where you think about the whole person. You can't ignore all the other pieces that are going on, and that's been really fun. The other thing is you have to be comfortable and interested in thinking really quickly. And so there's a saying in the hospital, time is muscle. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Jess Mega, herself a cardiologist and now chief medical officer at Google Verily, joined the tech company to help patients. She says that physicians who love patients need to lean into the tech world because great tech that doesn't change care doesn't have much of a chance. This is Tectonics. I'm David Chaywitz. And I'm Lisa Soonan, and today's episode is brought to you by AARP Market Innovation, which works to spark innovation in the market that will benefit the quality of life for people over 50. So, David, speaking yes, of people, um, so I, I saw this week that uh, Treasury Secretary, yeah, really, Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin said that quote, AI is so far in the future that its impact on jobs is not on his radar screen. What do you think about that? Well, I think it really brings up one of the issues that I feel like we're always encountering in the tech world, where there's something new and exciting, and the issue is when it's going to impact. And for example, the example that people always give of technology arriving sooner than people think is cell phones. Everyone cites some famous McKinsey study, right. Illumina are always showing this one, where it said, they said, oh, when is what, you know, if you look at the projected trajectory for cell phones. It was going to be way in the future. And all of a sudden they arrived. So then the flip side is everyone then announces because of that error. Similarly, their technology is going to arrive much sooner than anyone Mm -hmm. expects. Mm -hmm. And so we hear that for AI. We hear it for almost every emerging tech. And in general, I'm more familiar, I'm more... uh, I favor the quote that says technology, it sort of takes uh, the short-term impact is less than you think, but then the long-term impact is greater than you think. And I think AI will be in that category. Well, essentially, Mark Cuban's tweet in response was, quote unquote, wow. But if you look at like the companies we're seeing come in for investment, we're seeing a lot of AI companies and maybe they're not going to displace jobs in the immediate term. But well, but I mean, AI is, I mean, the, the, the flip is of that is like AI is the new in bed, right? So it's sort of like... <laughs> You know, like no matter what it is, instead of, you know, it's sort of, we're going to do the data with AI. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's sort of like on a computer or like yeah. we have Excel or it's, whatever. It's this year's big data, I know. Yeah. Anyways, I just thought it was really interesting. And considering our guest today, um, it is a particularly uh, relevant topic, at least data and how it's used. So we're here to welcome Jess Mega, who's the chief medical officer of Google Verily. And Jess, it is so great to have you here. Um, when we were speaking the other day, you said to me that physicians definitely need to be involved in the health technology world, but they have to be honest about what their contribution's really going to be. What did you mean by that? Well, I think being a physician, it's so rewarding working in a tech company, but I think there are many ways that physicians can get involved. Some people have an MD degree, but really focus on the more uh, technology side of things. For example, one of my colleagues has an MD degree, but he's an engineer, and that's where he finds his true value and his ownership. On the other hand, I see myself as someone who is a clinician who took care of patients for many years and does clinical research. And so what I try to do is identify what's the healthcare need and how do I marry that with the right technology, which may be AI. But so what are the, I mean, I know we've talked about this, and uh, let me just preface my question with saying I've been saying on Twitter and everywhere else, the single best thing in my view to ever happen to a health at Google and Google or Alphabet companies is um, just joining the company. So I'm, I'm hugely in favor of that. And I think that it was beyond that, it, there's a, an incredible need for the type of sort of, of empathy, of just intrinsic empathy and perspective and just, just general um, 
context that I think uh, Jess brings and imbues with, with, with uh, hopefully in, in the environment that she's in that she's done everywhere else. What have been the challenges as you've been interacting with so many engineers and technologists when you come into an organization like Google that prides itself and we are, I mean, on their hiring material, it literally says, they sort of make a point of this, we are run by engineers, right? I mean, it's kind of really baked into the culture. How has, how, how what challenges has that created as you've, um, uh, you know, trying to make your difference? Well, I'll start by saying I'm really glad I have you in my corner. It's <laughs> you, my mom, my, my grandma. So uh, thanks for being there. You know, I think that you're right. It's interesting to try to fi- figure out what's your true north. And when you are a group of people focused on healthcare and life science, it's really important to think about who you're trying to serve. And so if you come from the orientation of really thinking about what does it mean to be a person, a patient, a clinician, and then you try to use the right tools and technologies to solve those problems, I think we're going to be in a good place to actually do it. But you have to make sure that you have colleagues who are interested in that. And I feel personally very lucky that despite the fact we certainly are an engineering company, we wouldn't be able to do what we do today if that wasn't our core. But I think what I'm hearing from the group, and they're saying it really loudly, we want to get to know our users. We want to get to know patients. And so I see an openness uh, to be able to imp- imp- provide the humility. What have you seen as the biggest disconnect between how they or others understand medicine and what you and what your perspective is having grown up inside the culture? Well, this may be a practical answer, but a lot of times in medicine, it's in healthcare broadly, you may be creating solutions for people and patients, but the way it's it's sponsored or covered in the healthcare system, someone else may actually be buying it. And so it's not that direct, I'm going to create this amazing email product that Lisa and David are going to love to use because I know them. It's, I got to think about them and what their health needs are, but I've got to find a system that is actually going to sponsor or pay for it. And I think that's a really interesting piece that we all grapple with when we think about healthcare broadly. But connecting those dots has been really uh, very important. So you basically were pre- pre-programmed to be a doctor, right? Your, your parents were both doctors. You told me you grew up planning to mm-hmm. at least consider being a doctor. Um, do you, are you surprised to find yourself here where you are today? Would you have ever thought you'd have left clinical practice? So I was, I, I, there's a funny story about when I was a kid. So both my parents were doctors. My mom's a child psychiatrist. My dad's an ENT surgeon. And I had a very severe case of chickenpox, and so did my brother. And I took this little book, and I, I couldn't read at the time, but I was reading off the rules of how do you care for people with chickenpox and wow. was uh, using calamine lotion and, and patting it on. So I, I did have sort of that healing, caretaking uh, in my core. And, and I thought it was also interesting. People ask, would you want your child to be a physician? And my, my parents had such rewarding careers that were so different, even though they were under the title of doctor. If you think about their day-to-day and how broad it was, a psychiatrist and a surgeon, I thought they're both able to help people and I would love to be able to do that. Uh, no, I, I didn't think that I would uh, be here today, uh, but it has been an amazing journey. And what I usually tell people is, be open to your instinct, be open to the world around you, and find places where you can have impact. Do you ever wear the white coat at the office just to give yourself that juice? Oh, yeah. No. Um, <laughs> let's just say the style is a little different. Um, in fact, Lisa, I think I told you about some excellent shoes the other day that That's were right. quite comfortable. I bought my own pair. All birds. Go for it. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I think uh, the, the white coat has uh, now been, been shed, but it doesn't, uh, once, once it's in you, it's in you. 
So you, you're a cardiologist. I know what drew you to that specialty and what have you seen as the biggest change from when you started to now? So I find it really, uh, you think you know yourself and then you put yourself in situations and then you find what you're actually gravitating towards. Mm -hmm. The thing I love about cardiology is one, uh, it's the type of discipline where you think about the whole person. Uh, there's, uh, obviously we're focused on the cardiac issues, but you can't ignore all the other pieces that are going on. And that's been really fun. The other thing is you have to be comfortable and interested in thinking really quickly. And so there's a saying in the hospital, time is muscle. So when you have As in a, heart muscle, heart muscle, thank you. So if you have a blockage in one of your coronary arteries, you need to get that open quickly or you end up with a lot of loss of heart muscle. And so I actually love being able to come into a situation, assess it quickly and act. And so I'm probably a bit more of an adrenaline junkie than I, than I ever thought, uh, which goes back to knowing, thinking you know yourself, uh, but then really challenging yourself in positions and, and seeing what you gravitate towards. There's so much about the, the group you were with at, um, uh, at Harvard. I'm not sure how much the audience knows, but you were part of the, uh, this really legendary clinical trials group at the Brigham, right? I mean, started by Gene Bronwald. Right. Absolutely. And um, I mean, really, just sort of the, the really the godfather, you'd have to say, right, of um, uh, of, of sort of cardiology and, and randomized control trials in cardiology. And, you know, just an incredibly deep grounding in rigorous clinical science. How have you found the application of that mindset to the work you're doing now? So I'm so thankful. In addition to being a clinical cardiologist, I got quite interested in being a clinical trialist. I was sort of bitten by the bug. This was about 15 years ago. And even though that's not a huge period of time, if you think about the new therapies and how much has been advanced in the field of cardiology, a lot of it's due to rigorous clinical trials. And what that means for people who don't think about trials every day is how do you rigorously test new interventions to treat patients, for example, with heart attack? And what it instills in you is a discipline around really figuring out how do you test something that's new and how do you make sure that it's not just hype, it's not just kind of an interesting Branding. And the same thing could happen with medicines as will happen with digital health. And, I, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But we were put in a position to figure out how do you really test that something is going to help patients and not hurt them. And it can be counterintuitive, right? Isn't there the beta blocker example where it wasn't used because people thought it was dangerous and then it, then it needed to be used? Oh, th there's that example. And then there's the counter example where we all felt so strongly that HDL raising, for example, we know that HDL is the good cholesterol, and if you have better good cholesterol, your outcomes are better. We thought that if we gave a certain med, it'd be obvious that that would improve outcomes. And then it was tested, and it turned out to be more complicated because there were off-target effects of this medication. So you always had to test your assumptions. And being a scientist and being a trialist, you may go in with a certain notion, but you had to test it. And I think we're going to see the same thing as we introduce new technologies into the space of healthcare. How do we continue to be rigorous, continue to bring solutions that are actually improving outcomes. Not just that we think, oh man, that's a really cool widget. Of course it would help. So I bring that, that, that legacy, um, that tradition of being rigorous into this, into this space. Well, you were really doing precision medicine sort of before its time, before that term was even used, I imagine, because the kind of trials where you were doing were incredibly large scale and looking at for those individual variants for drug application and the like, right? Can you tell, talk about that a little bit? Because I was- She wants to hear about some of your early days in genetics. Yeah. My early days, yes. So Tell I, us when you were splicing genes together with uh, right, weird creatures. Right, exactly. Uh, I did that on the weekends. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, when I 
talk about precision medicine. I really like talking about it. I, to me, really good clinicians have always been practicing precision medicine. So Lisa, you may come in and you may tell me about your life. And I'm thinking, is this someone who wants to take a medicine twice a day or once a day? Or what's your circumstance? And what's your, what is your kidney function like? We always are being precise. But it's just there's a next generation of tools and technologies that help us be even more precise. So I don't think precision medicine is anything new. Now, there was an era where we started to get a handle on genetics and genomics. And what really caught my attention, going back to this idea of running trials, when we report the outcome, we usually report the overall outcome. So for example, a medication may improve outcomes by 20%. But how do we know that David's going to get that same benefit that you might. And so the challenge is, is there some something in your core, something in your DNA that helps us detect who would respond to a drug? And one of the medications was clopidogrel or, or Plavix, which is a very commonly prescribed medication for patients with heart attack. And it was observed that there was variability in response. And it was really exciting to be on the forefront of figuring out what genetic variants actually influence the response to this medication. And it turned out we, we did work ourselves. We um, had great partnerships with colleagues in France. And uh, it was really kind of fun to, to think about what cardiovascular pharmacogenetics could look like. Now, there's still challenges to get that Fun deployed. and cardiovascular pharmacogenetics don't always go in the same sentence for you. Super fun. <laughs> super fun. Hang out with me any Saturday night. Um, Sweet. So I just, that was really exciting. And, and I think we're now just on the cusp of this next generation of precision. So I think genetics is one way of slicing it, but we're going to have digital readouts. We're going to really start to think about precision in this holistic view. Did your experience with pharmacogenetics, to use that as a specific example of the, of the many different technologies you're talking about, on the one hand, like you're saying, it is an example where you realize that you can essentially the average population and be able to segment them and say, oh, these are the people in a population who are going to or who are not going to respond. But it's not... The, 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 the um, adoption of um, pharmacogenetics has been notoriously slow, right? I mean, the number of, it's incredible whether in cardiologists, cardiologists are probably ahead of the curve would be my visceral guess. But Oncologists probably a little whether, further ahead. Well, no, that's the thing in oncology. The number of uh, patients in the community who aren't, don't get even the basic molecular testing for cancers that would benefit from it with their molecularly informed therapies is staggeringly high, staggeringly. So I, even in the example you were describing with pharmacogenetics, was there a flip side to the lesson that when you see the opportunity, it's great, but then trying to get it adopted in the co complex medical system, were there lessons from that? I think there's a medical lesson and then there's a kind of practical ecosystem lesson. So from, from a medical perspective, a lot of times when we think about genetics, we think about Mendelian genetics. So one variant leads to a very distinct phenotype or outcome. And that's what we were taught in medical school. But these this new complex disease genetics means that little variants or variants may be pushing you in one direction or another. They're probabilistic, but they're not going to tell the whole story. And so we have to just get very comfortable with that. So it's, it's a reframing of what genetics is. So that's kind of the, the medical answer. On the practical side, what, what I came to realize is you can come up with a really interesting observation that replicates that yeah, is real. But if you don't have the tools, so for example, point of care genotyping to help someone make the decision in the moment, and if you don't have the right reimbursement patterns, even if the FDA changes a label as they did in this case, it's not going to make that last mile. So we always talk about translation and people talk a lot about the bench to bedside and all of that, but you then have to take it that next step of how do you actually deploy it 
in the real world. So I think there's some really important lessons broadly to be learned from that experience. But I mean, I think now, so I was about to ask you when, when do you think all this stuff will come to life? But I think particularly given that we're now putting in doctors' hands massive amounts of information about people, which they could never possibly process, you know, in the moment, much less even along the way to getting that patient in the office. How, how do they make sense of all that? I mean, how do they practically make sense of it? it so uh, going back to my parents that you brought up earlier, we joke a lot about what they had to learn and then what I had to learn. And as if it was two separate disciplines. And I think Doctors have that humility going back to it. That, that they're Doctors gonna... have humility. Fascinating idea. I'll we do, we do, we do. Well, we least... have the best humility. <laughs> or maybe we have humility. Um, but I think to be a really good doctor, you have to because you know that what you learn today uh, may or may not be the full picture tomorrow. And you have to, to take, take that on. And so, you know, your question about what's the timing I, I think we, we continue to get there. We have to figure out how to organize this information. You're right. When you have a finite amount of time to be with a patient and someone comes in with every bit of their digital data from different sources and different apps, there's no way you can integrate that. But this next generation of tools is going to have to organize it and make it meaningful. And it may be that it's meaningful to you as a direct patient or mm-hmm. people like to talk about as a consumer and that you sort of start to become more engaged in your own health, and it's not just the physician that's guiding that pathway. So does AI, you know, then back to Steve Mnuchin's uh, theory, does AI help doctors do a better job, or does it replace functions or activities of doctors and nurses? I think it ends up helping. So uh, if you think about places where we're seeing applications of, of AI, uh, you're looking at places where the data is still pretty concrete and it's pretty clean. And some things that physicians uh, used to spend a lot of time reading or detecting or looking for different signals, you can layer on a new way of, of organizing that information and then allow physicians to spend more time actually caring for their patients. So I see that as augmenting the role that a physician would play. One of the questions that I sort of wonder when we were talking about adoption and the rate of adoption of, of, of the technologies is, you know, you're saying, well, you know, it, it's a new world um, and doctors have to sort of learn how, you know, to be educated about, you know, uh, about all the information. One of the things that I struggle with is everyone always says, well, it, it's, a, it's an issue of education with all this fill in the blank genomics, digital health, whatever. Doctors have to learn to be educated about it. And I'm never sure if it's how much of it is about the education, oh, genetics is all new and funky, versus the actual utility of it, that actually doctors, in my, from what I've seen, um, actually are able to adopt pretty quickly to technology. I guess it depends. I know the 17-year thing. But I think that there are uh, examples where when it really does have an impact, they're able to adopt remarkably quickly. So I don't know how much of the adoption reflects that you know, an educational challenge or reflects the lack of impact, that it's more sort of hype than substance in many cases. And if all this, for example, some of this genetic stuff, well, actually, if it gets to the point where it really makes a difference, yeah, they'll learn it and they'll make sure their patients are tested. But Lisa's skeptical. I, well, you know, I'm sitting here like hearing the words of Dr. Alani Reisman, a friend of mine, in, in my ears about you know, have 50% of patients on AFib are not given, you know, the proper blood thinners, even though it's well known, you must do that, right, by cardiologists. And so, I don't know, I think um, there's a lot to habit 
you know, here, not just to education and to utility, but also to just what people are used to doing and overcoming the, you know, as just as everybody has, you know, physicians have inertia too. Yeah. This is how I was trained. This is what I do. But on the technology, whether it's AI, I mean, I'd be interested mm-hmm. in your thoughts, is it, you know, how much do you see the challenge being that it's a funky new technology that people have to get their hands around versus it hasn't, as you were saying earlier, hasn't really demonstrated um, palpable impact. So I'll I'll, um, I'll I'll unite the two. Uh, I think yes, extremes we're hearing. <laughs> yes, and what I'm seeing is you're, you're right. Yeah, media training <laughs> <laughs> is that there is when things are of value and technologies are of value, physicians will adopt them. And so the examples sometimes I point to. The stethoscope is centuries old. It was a valuable tool in technology. It was adopted. Cardiologists use cardiac imaging all the time because it's really helpful. We can't make the diagnosis around certain valvular disorders to understand the degree of severity without, for example, an echocardiogram. And cardiologists very readily embrace these tools. And so as we come up with tools that are useful, I think that they'll be embraced. The yes end piece is that sometimes the rate of change is so fast that we used to be able to get up to speed. We would have meetings twice a year, or you could have symposia. Doctors would have time to to really get up to speed. Now, the pace of change is very fast. The places to get the education can be challenging. And so all of a sudden, if there's new therapies and new ideas and new technologies and new information and new data flows, and we can talk about all of that, but all of a sudden, it's harder to always get access to it. And so your point about getting people on the right anticoagulants is one that's very uh, close to my heart, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> but it's something I think a lot about. You are you have to get people on the right medicines because we know that they're evidence-based. But how do we get that evidence base out there mm-hmm. in this busy environment? So that's where I would sort of split split the difference in, in this so what one. So what has it been like to just to move to sort of where you're at now, where um, – what, what your your day to day or what is it like? I mean, everyone wants to know. It sounds like coolest job on the planet. You're sitting around at you know on the one hand you're at Verily Google. It's like the coolest making thing. the world a better place. Making the world a better place, and no one uh, what was that right? Uh, and no one does it better than you guys, all right? Isn't that the Hooli quote? Um, but uh, but no, but what? Is, but it seems like on one hand like incredibly cool. On the other hand, no one has any idea. Like you know, it's it's still kind of an attraction to most people. Not not as much a black box as Apple. I think that's the ultimate black box, right? I mean, I haven't Stephen Friend. I have no idea. Like they just, just they really disappear. Whereas we see Jess occasionally, so that's nice. Um, but what 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 are you working on? What's it like? How has it been different? What was what's been the adjustment like? And how has it been different from being? Um, you know, really, this is is on this totally ascendant, rapid track at um, you know, as a you know, academic cardiologist at Harvard. Well, one thing that has been incredibly rewarding is I've I've always been very lucky. The people I've worked with, uh, my colleagues before my colleagues now, are incredibly talented and passionate and driven. And I think that there is something really intoxicating about that environment. And I've just been happy to to be really blessed to to see it in both places. It, it is interesting. So when I joined, I joined what um, was called Google X, so the research and development arm of Google, and we were working alongside some other big projects that ultimately were really trying to organize information. So Google organizes the world's information. If you think about the driverless car, that's also an information problem. Uh, we were working on healthcare. And now we're in a position where we try to think, what are some places where we can make a difference? And we know the ecosystem is big. And we know that in some cases we need to partner, but it's been really 
um, interesting to take a problem. Um, so take some sort of situation where we think we can bring the right tools. Can you technology. have a good example? What, like one of the yeah. projects you're working on? One of the ones that, uh, and this is a very concrete example, but if you think about the number of people who have diabetes, both in the United States and, and internationally, the number's on the rise. And we know that it's a situation that involves both medical as well as kind of more holistic treatments. And, Talking type 2, obviously. Yeah, and, and interestingly, some of the technologies could end up affecting type 1 as well. But if, you, if we put ourselves in the mindset of someone with type 2 diabetes, and we say, I'll, I'll play the scenario if we were all in my clinic. So I'd say, it's great to see you, Lisa. Uh, if you have diabetes, you need to take your insulin, see your foot doctor, see your eye doctor. Oh, I also need to take your oral meds. And if you could eat well and exercise, that would be awesome. And I'm going to see you back in six months. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not giving you the tools that you need between now and then to truly take care of what is going on with your your body. And there's this idea that if we start to bring tools, information, support to this person, that we may be able to help them really take control of the situation. And so in one case, to get very tangible, we're creating the an incredibly small continuous glucose monitor. And so that may, and we're doing this in partnership with Dexcom, um, but that likely will give you the feedback. So let's say I, I mentioned to someone that they shouldn't um, eat certain foods. They can then see if they eat certain foods, their glucose goes up. And other foods, it may be flat. And it gives people that feedback. It gives you something tangible to hold on to as opposed to this theoretical do the right thing without any metric. And so that's one area where we're trying to bring uh, new what we have called devices um, we're also bringing ways of organizing that information in conjunction with maybe what the person is eating or what their activity is. But again, bringing all these tools, which are both hardware and software, into a very clear space um, where we think we can help people. What I know you're also working in the robotics area? Yeah. So one area that we've... And again, if you were to try to think what's the thread that runs through these different projects, um, we try to create tools to collect information and health information can come from lots of different places. We can talk about that. But how do you collect, how do you organize, and how do you actually activate the information? And so in surgery, uh, right now, a lot of uh, surgeries are done individually. So I might go as a surgeon and I do my surgery. Um, Someone else might do it. Uh, In the fields of surgical robotics, you can start to learn from surgery to surgery. So you're collecting the information about the surgery. You're trying to organize it in a way that makes sense. And then you're trying to empower the surgeon who's doing the procedure. And so uh, there we're working on surgical robotics with Johnson & Johnson. They have a long history of of working in this area, but we're able to bring uh, augmented technologies into the space. So that's another example. That's through the lens of a physician. The earlier example was through the lens of a patient. Uh, But these are different areas where we feel we can make a difference. So what do you actually do in those projects? Are you, do you like walk around doctorly like and say carry on or, but, or are you engaged in product design or like, what is it you actually do? That was a little close to home there for me, Lisa. (laughs) Good work. Yes. Uh, Yeah. You know, it's been, uh, as you were. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, Yeah. You you know, it's actually, has been really a a nice uh, marriage between the, the clinical needs, the medical needs, and then what's the right technology. And I, one thing that hit me the other day is one of my colleagues who's a software engineer, we were meeting with a group and we were describing essentially a project that we were working on. And for some reason, just the way that the conversation unfolded, I he started to describe the medical the medical landscape and the need and the reason, the unmet uh, pieces that we need to work on. And he was up at the whiteboard and drawing things. And I just stepped back and was blown away. And then when they asked us, well, but what, you know, what are you going to build? 
I got up there and started drawing out the the, the models of the infrastructure <laughs> and where the data flows were going to sit and how we were going to actually, what repositories were we going to use and how were we going to um, then use the right analysis platforms. And I just thought, man, that's You guys that's are also beautiful. working on Dr. Frankenstein-style mind sharing. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a moment. And we, we've been working together now for a few years. But uh, I think uh, to really answer your question, uh, we have a, a group of, of clinicians and healthcare specialists and healthcare um, economists trying to help us figure out, you know, what 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 needs are out there and how can we partner with with folks who to create the tools. So it really has been two sides of a coin. It seems like so much of um, what I, I you know I think has traditionally been missing from sort of the technologist view of healthcare is is just the messiness of medicine and and so much of the soft we might call it sort of the soft stuff the stuff that Some doesn't might say it's complicated it's, it's complicated but it doesn't distill to like zeros and ones you know and it's like there's this idea that patients come in with a problem and come out with a solution and there's so much of doctoring that seems you know at its best different from that. Um, and 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 at a how do you bring that? Sen- I'm so curious. How do you bring that sensibility to an organization like Google? So, you've really hit on such an important issue. So, when we think about projects, or when I think about projects, I think what's the engineering risk and what's the biologic risk. So you can create this amazing tool, so refined, perfect tool, but biology is messy. Is that right? It's messy, though. Or something about that. And it's, when we think about it, and and as a doctor, and certainly as someone who has performed and conducted a lot of clinical research, you have to go in. the, The mantra when you conduct clinical research is you design the right study, and whether you see an outcome or if what we call it negative or a neutral study, as long as you design the experiment well, you will learn something. But I, I do think there's a bit of... Uh, understanding how complicated the ecosystem is, and then secondarily, just also understanding the timelines. So when you're in an environment where people are used to shipping and iterating very quickly, sometimes depending on what the outcome you're waiting for, that's not gonna that's not gonna surface in 24 hours. But there's even another side to it. I mean, you know, not just understanding the complexities of the healthcare ecosystem, but there's just the human complexities. I mean, when someone's in in your office as a physician, and you know they're scared and they're you know what. I mean, they may have come in with, oh, you know, this, you know, something on their chart is their chief complaint, but it's, there's so much more nuance and complexity around that, around the encounter and that, that, and what's really on people's mind doesn't always just sort of distill down to here's the problem and here's the, you know, evidence-driven answer, thank you, Watson or DeepMind or whatever, you know? Um, How do you, how do you share that perspective? How do you get that brought in? Yeah. So the way very tangibly, I mean, this goes back to what we introduced the the topic at the beginning, there are places that, that you can automate more quickly. So where something is going to be replicated, imaging is one that people talk a lot about, but you're right. What is actually in that human transaction when someone comes in and is talking about stomach pains, is it really a sign of, of something else? Is it uh, depression? Is there something else that actually is going on? And there, when the inputs are more complicated, I think we're going to have to, there's going to be a lot between now and when that actually can be fully organized. 
So the data inputs really. But you're assuming that it's. I mean, I guess that's the answer to your AI question. I I think they got her, Lisa. I think that they. I think that she's she's become Googleized. It's really. <laughs> that's my observation of this conversation. I I didn't realize that to the degree. We but can it's look like, for the panel on her back. I'm starting to wonder. Switch. Well, here are the inputs, and you know we can't quite do it today, but maybe next week. So that's very. Uh, that is. Uh, well, the human element, though, you'll never. If you, you, and you and I have talked yeah. about this, you're never going to replace that piece. And so I think sometimes people come to me and say, you know, is it, should I be a physician? Is it going to be phased out? And I'm like, absolutely not. And I come from the vantage point of being a critical care cardiologist and a cardiologist where you are with a person holding their hand sometimes in the last moment of their life. Right. And Super intense. I mean, unbelievable. never going to be able, I mean, it, depending on what it means just to be human and it's the whole reason why we don't take care of our of our family because your judgment is that you need a shepherd you need someone in those moments and so i just think of these as tools that will help enrich uh, what it means to be a clinician yeah i i I agree with you i i don't think we're uh we're getting rid of people anytime soon um you know i wanted to go to somewhere else um because i think it's really interesting that you only have a few minutes yeah we have a few minutes left but i want to go to 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 talk about your mom you told me that your mom is your role model, and I know she's also a physician. Um, and it's more often that you hear the father-son stories, or even the father-daughter stories, but it's rare you hear a mom-daughter story. So tell me a little bit about that, about the relationship and how that's impacted you and your work. The thing about uh, my my mom, and uh, you know, she's my mom, so I'll say this. I mean, she really is an incredibly special person. She is. Uh, the type of person that when she went to med school, um, she really was uh, trailblazing. And she's someone who has always taken incredibly good care of her colleagues, incredibly good care of other female doctors. And she she really is a standout in that regard. And the other thing is she's incredibly funny and bright and engaging and compassionate, but she's also really strong. And she's got her own center of gravity. And whenever... I, I feel a little bit um, off kilter. I, I think of her and I think about her passion and the way she conducts her life. And I have just been really, really, really lucky uh, to have someone like her in my life. And I should, I mean, my dad's uh, amazing. He's, he's uh, had a huge impact, kept me strong, kept me tough. But it's, it's very nice to be able to turn to them uh, and always have them on my side. Was there like a, a mantra or quote your mom said all the time? Is there a thing that rings in your head when you think of her? She pretty much, she, it's less of one thing she says, and it's more what she does. She's one of these people who is just never trying to keep up with the Joneses, just do what's right. You, you know you better than anyone else does, and you do what's right. And she says it with her, she's kind of a small person. She says it with conviction. And, uh, small but mighty. Huh? Small but mighty, I will tell you. And uh, I think my brother and I were really beneficiaries of, of that attitude. Well, it sounds like you were so fortunate um, uh, to have such role models, and they must be, uh, as we would say, fouling like crazy to have a daughter <laughs> like you. No kidding. Um, well, thank you, Jess. It's been so great to have you here today. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you in front of a crowd. Thank you all. <laughs> this has been uh, a, tr- a true pleasure, and uh, thanks so much for the conversation. Today's guest, Jessica Mega, was speaking to us today from Tectonic Studio A in Hillsboro, California. She is so cool, isn't she? I know. She? I love her. She is cool. She's she's just one of those people that you just want to hang out with, you know, because she's so smart and engaging and fun and, and like, too cool for school. 
Yeah, and I think I really do th continue uh, to think it's going to be such a great thing to have um, uh, to have jazz and you know, and and I, I would say. Um, what she brings to a place like Google, where on the one hand, she, she it's not just the knowledge of medicine or here's the healthcare perspective, but I think that the sort of the, the, the I guess I would say... Empathy. The, the, the empathy, empathy, the humanism, the, the, the sense mm -hmm. of, um, uh, you know, of what it means to take care of patients, together with a very, very, as she was sort of you know, alluding to, super rigorous sense of what it means to do... Um, the very highest quality uh, you know, clinical research um, like they do, you know, um, uh, you know like the Brigham is particularly well known for. So um, she's awesome. I just yeah, wish her the very best. Fun to have her here. You can follow um, Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com as well as on the Timmerman Report. And by the way, before we forget, please, please, please remember to review us on uh, iTunes, rate us, let us know, uh, let us know you're out there. And you can follow David Shaywitz's writing at Forbes. We are grateful. We're grateful in general, but we're specifically grateful to AARP for sponsoring this episode of Tectonics. AARP's market innovation team works to spark innovation in the market that will benefit the quality of life for people over 50. Please join us next time when our guest is Jan Bruce, founder and CEO of Mequilibrium. Ciao, baby. Well, off we go to make the world a better place. All I care about is that Nucleus is better than Pied Piper. Hendricks just left us all in the dust. If, if we get this wrong, we could blow the business opportunity of a lifetime. Data creation is exploding. With all the selfies and useless files people refuse to delete on the cloud, 92% of the world's data was created in the last two years alone. At the current rate, the world's data storage capacity will be overtaken by next spring. There will be nothing short of a catastrophe. Data shortages, data rationing, data black markets. Someone's compression will save the world from data getting, and it sure as hell better be Nucleus and not Pied Piper. I don't know about you people, but I don't want to live in a world where someone else makes the world a better place, better than we do.